Well, it's great to, great to see you tonight. Uh, my name is Kevin, and uh, we're going to spend some time looking at Judges chapter 17 and 18. So it'd be great if you could turn back to there, page 230. But how about I pray again as we come to look at the Bible together. Our Heavenly Father, again we give you thanks for your word. And Father, as we come to read it and think through it tonight, Father, we pray that by your spirit that you might shape and change us to be more like Jesus. And we pray this for the glory of his name. Amen. And now for tonight, uh, we're looking at uh, two chapters uh, in the book of Judges. So you can see uh, chapter 17 and chapter 18, uh, two kind of sad stories, really. Uh, in one sense, oh, sorry, firstly, the, uh, the idolatry of uh, a man, Micah, uh, but secondly, the idolatry of a whole tribe, the tribe of Dan, uh, known as the, uh, the Danites. And as we look through these two chapters, you'll see how they're related uh, together. Uh, but before we get into the details of uh, chapter 17, it's worth just kind of reminding ourselves a little bit of the, the big picture of the book of Judges and how it sort of fits in. Uh, so I've got a little uh, a timeline here, so you can see this is the, the time of the Judges. Uh, and it sort of begins with the book of Joshua. Right, if you remember God's people, they were in Egypt in slavery. Moses sort of led them out. Uh, but when Moses died, Joshua took over. And it was under the leadership of Joshua that God's people came into the land of Canaan. Uh, that's when the sort of the conquest began, but it wasn't finished. Uh, in fact, the time of the Judges is really the story of how these 12 tribes of Israel, how they're trying to establish themselves in the land uh, while they're surrounded by all these foreign nations. But the book comes to an end uh, with Samuel, right? Samuel's sort of like the last judge uh, and the first of the prophets. Uh, and it's through Samuel that we have the first king. So King Saul is anointed, and then after him, David, Solomon, and, and so on. So you can see that the, the book of Judges sort of sits in the middle of those things. And it's sort of a, a pretty chaotic period. Uh, and uh, that's the sort of what we've been following on so far. Now, most of what we've seen already has been to follow this uh, particular cycle that we see in the book of Judges, so that the people, uh, they fall into sin, uh, usually uh, idolatry, uh, and then God, well, He judges them for that, usually by some foreign nation coming to oppress them. Uh, then there's a time of rescue. Uh, dramatically, God will raise up some judge to rescue His people. There's a, a time of peace, but then they fall back into sin, right? So this is what we've seen already in the book of Judges. Uh, but now as we come to the last couple of chapters, uh, chapters 17 and 18, and then next week, chapter 19 and 21, uh, we see these stories that kind of, kind of like a conclusion uh, to the book. And as we look at them, we see it, they're quite different to what has come before, right? There are no exciting stories of judges who kind of uh, rescue God's people. Uh, in fact, they're, well, they're kind of uh, sad stories that we see that conclude the book. But these chapters, 17 to 21, they're, they're tied together with this phrase that comes up, right? Chapter 17, verse 6 is where we first see it. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did whatever he wanted. But this phrase is repeated exactly the same in Judges 21, 25, right? The very last verse of the book. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what he wanted, and so this phrase kind of well, ties together this conclusion. As we look at these stories recorded before us, 
We see this was what it was like to be in Israel. This was what it was like to be in Israel when there was no king and everyone did whatever he wanted. Right? So that's what we're expecting then as we come to chapter 17. And then in verse 1, we're introduced to the main character, right? The main character, Micah. And we see in verse 1, he's from the hill country of Ephraim. I've got a little uh, a map here, you can see. Uh, this is the, well, the layout of the land that it was meant to be, uh, as each of the tribes were, were sort of given the land. And you can see there's the tribe of Ephraim in the middle, right? So this is the area that uh, Micah was from, from up in the, up in the hills. And uh, what we see is chapter 17 starts with a confession on Micah, right? He admits to his mother that he has stolen this amount of silver from him, right? Verse 2, you can see that he's taken 1,100 pieces of silver from his mother. Now, when we see uh, 1,100 pieces of silver, sorry, it's, I, I think, a, a reference to a shekel here. We've got probably uh, 1,100 shekels. A shekel was a really sort of common... Uh, measure of, um, of weight at that time, uh, around about 11 grams, okay, so 1,100 shekels is about 12 and a half kilos, right? So don't think Micah's, you know, he's gone to his mum's purse and taken 1,100 silver coins out, right? He, he's taken the equivalent weight of 1,100 shekels, right? Around 12 and a half kilos, which, that's quite a lot, isn't it, right? Quite a lot that he's taken from his mum, but the reason that he returns it is because he hears that his mother curses the one who takes it. And so he thinks, okay, now's, now's a good time to own up. And so he goes to his mum and says, look, I'm sorry, I took your silver, here it is, back. And so Micah's mother, verse 2, well, she turns her curse into a blessing. She says to him, my son, you are blessed by the Lord. But having said this, well, this is where the story kind of takes a turn for the worse, in verse 3, with the mother now having the silver back in her possession, she says, verse 3, I personally consecrate the silver to the Lord. That seems pretty good, right? But it continues, it's for my son's benefit to make a carved image overlaid with silver. So what she's talking about is, is making an idol. And we think, well, this is a bad idea, right? This is not how God wanted his people to live. In fact, this is against God's law. So we think back to the second commandment of the, of the Ten Commandments, right? pretty clear, Exodus 24, do not make an idol for yourself, whether in the shape of anything in the heavens above or on the earth below or in the waters under the earth. And yet we see this is exactly what Micah's mother has done. She has decided to make an idol. Now one thing that's just interesting to note in passing is how much silver she gives to the silversmith. Uh, you can see verse 4, she gives five pounds of silver. Uh, literally, she gives 200 pieces of silver. Uh, if we imagine again, talking about uh, shekels then, uh, 200 shekels is about 2.3 kilos, right? So it kind of gives you a bit of an indication this is the, the size of the image or idol that was made. But it also raises a question, well, hang on, she, she started with 1,100 pieces of silver. Why is she only given 200 to the silversmith? What happened to the other 900, right? Now we're not told, but it does kind of just raise a question, doesn't it, about Micah's mother? But instead, the passage, well, shifts to focus on Micah, right? He's the one who's given this image overlaid with silver to put in his house. And then in verse 5, we see that Micah adds to it, 
Right? Verse 5, he has a shrine. He makes an ephod and more household idols. And then verse 5, he installs one of his sons to be his priest. Now again, this is, this is a bad thing for Micah to do. I remember Micah, he's from the tribe of Ephraim. Priests, they were meant to be from the tribe of Levi. Right? It wasn't right for him just to choose his son and say, hey, son, you can be my priest. But this leads us then to verse 6, right? The key verse for understanding this section. Verse 6, in those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did whatever he wanted. Or if you look down at the footnote, more, more literally, it says, in those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his eyes. And so that's what we see for Micah. Right, what he's doing here, well, this is what seems right to him in his own eyes. But remember, this is supposed to be representative. This is to show us what Israel was like in the time there was no king. But coming back to the passage, now Micah has an opportunity to, well, to upgrade his little religious establishment. Right, verse 7, we're introduced to another young man, right, this time a Levite from Bethlehem in Judah. Now, a Levite, so from the the tribe of Levi, uh, the Levites were a little bit different to the other tribes of Israel. Uh, They were set apart for service of the Lord. They were given particular responsibilities when it came to the tent of meeting and and later on in the temple. But the other thing that was really interesting about the Levites was that they weren't given any land. So if I go back to my uh, map before, right, this was when uh, Joshua entered in the land, they divided the, the land amongst the tribes but you won't see the tribe of Levi there, right? They weren't given a little patch of land for them to live in. Instead, the Levites, they were to live amongst the other tribes, right? So it makes sense that this young man we're introduced to in verse 7, well, he's a Levite from the tribe of Levi, but he's living in, sorry, living in, in Bethlehem of Judah. But this young Levi, he decides to uh, leave the place where he is to settle wherever he could find a place. I don't know why he leaves, but he's sort of travelling around and comes to all the hill country of Ephraim. And while he's there, he comes to the house of Micah. So Micah asks him, where you're from? He says, verse 9, I'm a Levite from Bethlehem in Judah, and I'm going to settle wherever I can find a place. And so Micah says to him, verse 10, well, stay with me and be my father and priest, and I will give you four ounces of silver a year. Uh, Literally, he's saying, I'll give you 10 pieces of silver. Not a lot when he has 900 up his sleeve, but anyway, he also offers him clothing and provisions. uh, And the Levite agrees to stay. Levite agrees to stay in the house of Micah and to be a priest. And so, in one sense, this Levite is like a father to Micah in a sort of a, a spiritual sense as a priest. But in another sense, this Levite is like a son. He lives in the household of Micah and, uh, and Micah cares for him. So verse 12, Micah consecrated the Levite and the young man became his priest and lived in Micah's house. Now we're not really sure what happened to the other son at this point. Remember, he already had a son installed as priest. Maybe he was uh, shuffled out or maybe he continued on, I'm not right sure. But what is clear is that Micah is, is very pleased with himself here. Right, verse 13, he says, Now I know that the Lord will be good to me because a Levite has become my priest. Right, you can see this is what is right in the eyes of Micah. 
He is doing what he thinks is the right thing. But of course, for us as readers, we see that Micah is, well, he's confused, right? We see that Micah is an idolater. And yes, he has a a Levite as a priest, okay, that's good, I guess. But that doesn't cancel out all this idolatry that is going on in his household. And so we see that Micah is mistaken. And this will be confirmed for us actually later in chapter 18. Right? Remember, Micah's pretty clear. Now I know the Lord will be good to me because a Levite has become my priest. What we see in chapter 18, the kind of irony of Micah's words here, it's because of this Levite priest that will Micah will end up losing everything. And we'll see that in chapter 18 as it unfolds. But now having come to the end of chapter 17, it's worth just stopping for a moment and, and reflecting and asking, well, how might this passage speak to us then as Christians? And the key, I think, for us is to, to come back to the verse that we referred to before, right? Judges chapter 17, verse 6, in these days there was no king in Israel, everyone did what was right in his eyes. As we see the story of uh, Micah's idolatry, we're meant to see this is representative, right? This is what it was like in the time when there was no king, when everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And of course, as you see the passage, it does make you look forward, doesn't it? It makes you look forward to the time when there would be a king in Israel. Right? And if we sort of follow the story of the Bible, we know that Samuel came, the last judge, the first prophet, and through Samuel there was a king, Saul, and then David and Solomon. And we see in the time of kings, well, in, in one sense it is an improvement. Right? Israel becomes one nation, but it's also disappointing. The kings are flawed. The kings so often led Israel into sin. But of course, for us as Christians, we, we, we know that's not the end of the story. We know there was another king to come in the future, one who would be born in Bethlehem in the region of Judah, one who would come as the, the son of God who took on flesh, the one who was perfect and pure, the one who would go to the cross to die in our place, the one whom God raised to life again, the one who ascended to the right hand of the Father, the one who promises an eternal kingdom. See, for us as Christians, we know that the greatest king is King Jesus. He is the one who was to come. And so what that means then as we read this, well, this part of Judges, the implication for us as Christians is to be glad that we do not live in this time. The implication is that we recognize what a privilege, what a joy it is that we have the greatest king of all. For us as God's people, we have, well, we have King Jesus, the one who is perfect and powerful, the one who loves us. And so it makes sense then for us as Christians, as we know Jesus, that we would want to follow him that we would want him to be the number one in our life. But while I think that is the, the, the main application we're meant to come a, a, as Christians, right, to rejoice in the, the privilege of knowing Jesus is our King, I think there is another well, point of application we can come away with. And that is well, to see the kind of 
negative example of Micah and his idolatry. See, I think one of the things for us as Christians, as we sort of look back to Micah, it's, it's really easy for us to sort of scoff at him, isn't it? To look back with all that we know and to say, Micah, you fool, right? Why were you involved in such idolatry? It's easy for us to look back and point the finger at him. But of course, the question is, well, do we recognize the danger for us? Do we recognize the way that we are tempted towards idolatry? See, idolatry is not just bowing down to an image overlaid with silver. Idolatry in the Bible is to put anything before God. So money can become an idol, right? The idolatry of putting the pursuit of money before God. Or our career can become an idol. Or, or the pursuit of pleasure can become an idol. Right? There are many ways that we can put other things before our service of God. Uh, sometimes it can be good things, like family. Right? Family can become an idol. Or the things that we do at church, that can become an idol. Or our relationships. There are many ways that for us as Christians, that things can take the place of God, that they become our focus And this is the sin of idolatry. And this is something we need to be really careful of as we come to the example of Micah. Well, it's an opportunity to reflect on ourselves and to think, well, how are we tempted? How are we tempted to fall into the sin of idolatry? How are we tempted to put other things before God? I mean, perhaps even this week, you could commit yourself to praying that God would show you that. It's a bit of a scary thought, isn't it? To ask that God would show you the ways that you fall short. And yet if we want to be people who are committed to following Jesus, well, it's so important that we recognize the ways that we fall short. I mean, one of the, one of the great things about being a Christian is that we don't need to hide our sin from God. I mean, he already knows about it. But the great thing is because we know the forgiveness that comes in the gospel... We don't need to hide it. We can freely confess our sin before God, knowing that He promises to forgive us in the Lord Jesus. But of course, as we confess our sin, as we pray that God would show it to us, we also pray that God would change us, that we might put off the sin of idolatry, but instead, by God's Spirit, that He would transform us to be more like Jesus. And so as we come to this story then of Micah's idolatry in chapter 17, a good opportunity for us to stop and reflect on the dangers for ourselves. But having looked now at chapter 17, well, that brings us then to chapter 18, right? Another story, sort of a, well, a sad story of idolatry, this time not just of, well, one man and his family, but of a whole tribe, right? The tribe of Dan. But to understand how chapter 18 works. We need to go back to uh, our map for a moment. And if you remember, I said this is the kind of, well, this is the intention, right? When God's people came into the land, they sort of divided it all up. And uh, this was the kind of ideal of where the tribes were to live. But it wasn't the reality, right? So, for example, there's the the tribe of Dan. And uh, if you think right back to Judges chapter 1, you might remember that the Danites weren't able to live in the land that had been set aside for them because the Amorites were there. And so what happened is the Danites 
weren't living where they were supposed to. Instead, they were living a bit further south amongst the tribe of Judah. And so what happens in chapter 18 is that the Danites, well, they're looking for a place to call home, right? They're a bit fed up of living with those of uh, Judah. And so they come up with this plan, right? They choose five brave men from among them uh, to go out and explore the land and to look for a place to stay, sorry, a place to stay. And so they head out from Judah, they're wandering around and they come to the hill country of Ephraim. And there, of course, they come to Micah's house and spend the night there. But while they're there, they get to meet this Levite who's serving as a priest. And so they ask him some questions. You can see this, verse 3. Who brought you here? What are you doing in this place? What is keeping you here? You see from their questions, maybe a little bit of a hint of what is about to unfold. But for these five brave men, remember, they're on a journey, and so they think, well, they've got a Levite priest here, we'll we'll ask what he thinks, right? Verse 5, they say, please inquire of God, so we will know if we will have a successful journey. So verse 6, the Levite priest tells them, well, go in peace, the Lord is watching over the journey you are going on. Now, it's hard to know, I think, what to make of verse 6. Is this a a genuine word from the Lord? Uh, I mean, on one hand, the the journey of these five scouts does seem to be successful. But on the other hand, as the story continues, we're a little bit suspicious of this uh, Levite priest and his idolatry, so it's hard to know how to take verse 6. But in either case, the journey of these five scouts, well, it does seem to be a success. Right? They continue all the way north to the town of Laish. Uh, and when they get there, they see this is uh, not an Israelite town, it's a, a town of Gentiles. It uh, looks like a, a nice place for them to stay. And importantly, uh, it doesn't look very well defended. And so they think, look, we could come and take the city of Laish and, and we could stay there. So they head all the way back south to the region of Judah where the rest of their tribe are living. And they say, hey, look, we found this great place. We should we should go up there, right? And so the people agree, the whole tribe of Dan, they leave Judah and head up to the town of Laish. But on the way, they just stop in at the, well, the hill country of Ephraim, and they stop at the house of Micah. Uh, And when they get there, verse 14, the five men who'd gone to scout up the land, they say to the rest of the tribe, they say, did you know that there's an ephod, household gods and a carved image overlaid with silver in these houses. Now think about what you should do. Now the suggestion of these five men is pretty clear, isn't it? And so then we have this really dramatic scene. There's 600 people from the tribe of Dan who are armed to the teeth with the weapons of war. They go and stand at the front gate of Micah's house. And then the five scouts go into the house to take, well, the image overlaid with uh, sorry, the image overlaid with silver, the ephod, the household idols. But as they're going in, the Levite priest stops them and says, "Well, what are you doing?" Right? That's in verse eighteen. Verse nineteen, the Levite priest replies. Oh, sorry, the, the Danites reply. They say to the priest, "Be quiet. Keep your mouth shut." And they give him an invitation, come with us, come with us and be a father and a priest to us. Is it better for you to be a priest for the house of one person 
or for you to be the priest for a tribe and family in Israel. So you can see the, the loyalty of this Levite priest is being tested. And in verse 20, he agrees to go with the tribe of Dan. He was pleased and he took the ephod, the household idols and the carved image and went with the people of Dan. As they left verse 21, they put the small children, the livestock, the possessions in front of them. Of course, expecting that there may be someone coming from behind chasing after them. And of course, that's exactly what happens. Micah and the people who are with him, they sort of catch up to the Danites. And the Danites say, hey, what are you doing here, Micah? And he says, well, you've stolen all my stuff. But the Danites say to him, go home, Micah. Right? Look how many people we have. Go home or you will lose your life. Now, Micah realizes he's outmatched, and so he turns back and heads home empty-handed. And we see that's kind of the conclusion to chapter 17. We, we see the irony of Micah's words. He thought it would go well for him to have this Levite priest. But we see, actually, it was because of the Levite priest that they lose everything. But coming back to the tribe of Dan, they continue on with their journey, with their well, they're priest and they're idol in hand. They head up to Laish, they capture it, they burn it down, and they rebuild it as the city of Dan. Uh, and that is where the tribe of Dan is established. Now, the city of Dan becomes uh, quite famous in the Bible. It's kind of the, the northernmost point of Israel, so it's often sort of described in that way. It also becomes infamous. Uh, this is where uh, Jeroboam, one of the kings, puts a, a golden calf as well as an idol. You can read about that in uh, 1 Kings later on. But coming back to uh, Judges chapter 18, we sort of see a conclusion to the story. Right? The Danites, they set up the carved image that they'd well taken from Micah. Uh, and then we're introduced, well, finally given the name of the Levite priest. This is Jonathan, uh, the son or perhaps the descendant of Gershom uh, in the line of Moses. And we see that his family were, were priests of the tribe of Dan. And so what we see is they then set up this uh, image overlaid with silver, the one they'd taken from Micah, or they set it up in their city and continue on in their idolatry. And so what we see then at the end of chapter 18, and, I mean, in many ways it's kind of a repeat of chapter 17, isn't it? Chapter 17 started with Micah stealing silver, ends in idolatry. Chapter 18, it's the tribe of Jan silving, sorry, stealing silver, this time from Micah and ends with idolatry in their new town. And all this really kind of, well, reinforces the, the, the point that we've seen already, right? Judges chapter 17, verse 6, we see that in those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his eyes. It wasn't just Micah and his family. It wasn't just the tribe of Dan. It was everyone, right? This is what characterized the time when there was no king in Israel. And of course, it's a great reminder for us as Christians then, well, to rejoice and be glad that we do not live in this time. To see the great privilege that we live in the time of King Jesus. That we know that the greatest King of all, the one who is perfect and pure, the one who rose back from the dead, the one who has ascended and is seated at the right hand of the Father, the one who promises us an eternal kingdom in His name. The King who loved us so much that He would give His life for us. What a great joy and privilege we have as God's people to know this one as our King. 
But see, as we're reminded of how amazing Jesus is, why would we be tempted by idolatry? When we're reminded of how amazing Jesus is as our King, why would we be tempted to put other things before our service of Him? Why would we be tempted to put the pursuit of money or our career or the pursuit of pleasure? Why would we be tempted to put good things like like family or ministry or relationships? Why would we be tempted to put those things before our service of this King? And yet, of course, that is the danger for us as Christians, isn't it? The sin of idolatry is so deceptive. It's so easy for us to, to start with Jesus as our King, but, but over time for distractions to creep in, for the lure of idolatry to take over. And so I hope then and pray that as we come to Judges 17 and 18, that you might be reminded of what a great King we have in the Lord Jesus, but that you would also be honest about the trap of idolatry, that you would pray that God would make that clear to you and that by His Spirit, He might continue to work and change you. How about I lead us in prayer in light of that? Our Father, we give you thanks for the Lord Jesus. Father, as we look back to the chaotic time of the judges, Father, we're so thankful for our Lord. We thank you that he is perfect and pure. We thank you that he is the one who loves us, who died in our place to bring the forgiveness that we so desperately need. Father, we pray you'd help us to see just how amazing Jesus is, that we would rejoice that he is our King. And yet, Father... We are sorry for the way we, well, we so easily get caught up in idolatry. We're sorry for the way that we get distracted, that we put other things before you. Father, we pray that you would show us the ways that we fall short. Help us to see clearly the sin that so easily entangles us. But more than this, Father, we pray that by your Spirit that we might put off sin. We pray that by your spirit that you would transform us. Help us to live lives that please you. Help us to live with Jesus as our King for the praise of your glory. And we pray these things in his name. Amen.